Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of His story, a story that He has been writing since the beginning for our good and His glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. You can be seated. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to have you all here. Great to see the kids in here. You may notice on the board uh, the words repent and revival, which sounds like very churchy words, doesn't it? That uh, we're going to repent and we're going to have a revival. But we're trying to reclaim these words during this new season that we're coming into, into this winter-spring season. We're going to be studying the book of Genesis, actually the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And the way we're going to view them uh, through our lives is through repentance and through revival. That Repentance, what is that? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I love uh, to watch the Olympics. In fact, you know what's crazy about the Olympics is it's the only time I ever watch track and field. Is there anybody here that watches track and field on a regular basis? There's, uh, yeah, none of you, right. <laughs> Those poor, they're just not making any money because of us, you know, nobody's watching. I have never seen a track and field event where they come up to the line and some guy has got 30-pound weights in each hand, you know, thinking, this is really going to get me going. That's not what you see at all. It's an exaggerated illustration because what they're doing is they're coming, they've stripped down the necks to nothing, and even their shoes are, are weighed for getting lighter and lighter and lighter so they can go faster and faster and faster. And when we talk about repentance, this is the image I want you to have in your mind. Repentance is actually taking the things that are weighing us down and letting them go. That's repentance. Letting them go. So that, not so that we can pitch a big tent out in the front of the property and have a revival. I put this down so that I'm revived. To do what? To live life. Listen, this is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. In chapter 12, if you've never read Hebrews, there's a chapter 11 that is remarkable because it's talking about all the people that have gone before us that have dared to live their lives by faith. You know, it's a rare thing. It's not a common thing. And this, this story of all these people that have gone before us and the people around us, he calls this great cloud of witnesses. It's like, it's like we're at the top of a mountain and the clouds have just engulfed us. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, open your eyes so that you can see those that have dared to live their lives by faith putting down to be revived, to be purposeful with our lives. He says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off, throw off, how many times can I pick those up? Throw off everything that hinders, that keeps us from running, and the sin 
which is the same, that so easily entangles us. Throw it off. Then he goes on to say, so let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author or the pioneer of our faith. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And what was his joy? You. That we are to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. Set our eyes on the one who suffered for us. Why? So that we can run. We were made to run. So the whole series of Genesis is going to be about. So each week we're going to talk about what do we need to put down and how do we live in this place of revival or being revived. So you ready? All right. Well, Genesis is an interesting book, especially the first 12 chapters. Really, we're only going to get about halfway through chapter 12. Because we're going back to the origin of all origins. We're going back to the start of all starts. We're going back to the beginning of every beginning that has ever taken place. Because in those first 11 chapters, we get some big questions answered. Questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Questions about, does any of this matter? Does it matter how I view money or how I view sex or how I view work or relationships? Like, what is fear about, desire? anger, expectations, trauma, life. What is all this about? Who is God and where is God? All these things are addressed in the first 11 chapters. And so for us to understand this book, first we have to <clears throat> understand who wrote it and why he wrote it. So if we understand uh, Genesis, uh, this was written by Moses. Uh, and it's important to know when he wrote it. This was an inspiration by God to a man named Moses who was leading God's people out of Egypt uh, to the promised land. Now, when he came into Egypt, the Israelites, God's holy people, have been imprisoned there as slaves for how many years? 400, 400 years. <clears throat> that meant that the people that left Egypt, all they had ever known in their entire lives was slavery. All they had ever known in their parents' lives was slavery. All they had ever known in their grandparents' lives were slavery. Is there anybody here that knows your great-great-grandparents? Nobody. So as far back as they could remember, everybody they've ever known, everybody they've ever been related to, everybody that had any kind of parental influence on their lives were slaves. And the only way they knew how to think was think like a slave. And they also, their experience with God was the Egyptian gods. Their understanding of God was this small. Their understanding of who they were as God's people was even smaller. They were confused about who they are. They were confused about who God is. And all they had was a slave mentality. And God gave Moses the book of Genesis to give to the people to help reshape their understanding of who they were, what life was about, and who God is. Okay. And when they got this book, they were in an impossible situation. They were in the desert, surrounded by enemies, looking for water and food, and struggling at every point. And isn't that crazy? If we had time this morning, we don't. Because as you can see, I have a special guest coming up here, <coughs> which will be one of you that I'll randomly pick. <laughs> there are numbers under each seat, so prepare yourself. Somebody just panic. No. <coughs> Think about this. Why would God choose in the most difficult moment of these people's lives? 
They're experiencing freedom, but this freedom was so hard, they were all grumbling and saying, let's go back to Egypt. Remember this? We've studied this before. This is hard. And God is saying, in that struggle, in that struggle is where I'm going to reveal to you who I am. And I'm going to reveal to you who you are. And I'm going to reveal to you why all this is taking place. I'm going to let pain and suffering now be your teacher. And in that pain and suffering, you're going to experience me in a way that you could never experience me back in Egypt. And in a way you could never experience me in the promised land. This is where you need to learn my ways. And i got to tell you guys, if you're going to live your life, if you're not going to put your hand, head in the sand or lock yourself in your bedroom and never come out, life is going to be hard. In fact, let me <clears throat> just break the news to you. You bring expectations to every part of your life. I don't care. Every part of you. Have you ever stood in front of the mirror and went, ah. has anybody done that? <laughs> Nobody? Nobody's done that. Some in the back are crying. Yes, I've done it. That's disappointment because you have expectations. You were like, I thought after four children I would have a six pack. <laughs> no. That's expectations. And after expectations is disappointment. And disappointment is hard. You have them about your relationships. You have them about your marriage. You have them about yourself. You have, do you have any disappointments about your career? Good Lord. Like, let's just keep going. Where you live, where you don't live, what you thought you were going to do, what you're not going to do. Life is not going to turn out the way you wanted to or you thought you wanted it to. And that's called disappointment. And in the midst of that place, God meets us. And he meets us in that place of pain because he wants us to know him. And he wants you to know you. And he wants you to experience the journey of putting down and being revived. Because he's got a race for you to run. I mean, it's a beautiful race. You've been gifted for it. So before we read any of this book, let me just place the obvious out there. This book is going to stir a lot of your doubts. It's, it's going to stir a lot of questions. It's going to stir a lot of, come on. Like when we read the creation story, you're going to be like, ah, come on, is it six days? Is it six million years? Classified as a day? Like Then we're going to get to Adam and Eve, and you're going to go, was there really an Adam? <clears throat> come on, Really? Some guy running around a garden naked with God? Like, is that, is that just a story? Or, and then, if you're not in cynic land yet, you know, then we have the Tower of Babel, you know, the scattering of the people. And if you're still hanging on, then we're going to get to this story about every animal on the planet getting in a boat. All right? <clears throat> so, this isn't a science book. It's a history book. And you need to understand that even the first chapter is a poem. First chapter of Genesis is a poem. And many believe, many historians believe that the cadence of this first chapter in the original language, it, it was written like a song. So they could begin to sing to one another the songs of creation. So they could know their God, know themselves, put down and be revived and run the race. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So I could teach all day on these two verses. Since we don't have all day. And I have one of you coming up here soon. <clears throat> Let's just talk about the first four words. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning... 
God. In the beginning, God. And already my mind is blown. And I'll tell you why. You're like, well, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal, because I can't comprehend what is being declared in the very first four words of the entire Bible is that before there was anything, there was God. Before anything existed, there was God. He is the pre-existent one. That what is declaring, and this is just mind-boggling to me, is that time is not the one thing that God is held prisoner to. That even time itself, as we understand time, was created by God. That God is the author of time because when there was no time, he existed. And when he existed time, he wasn't bound by it. Time is subservient to the will of God. Even that, gravity, nature, all of it, all of that, before any of that, he was God. And it's hard for us to think about something eternal. It's hard for us to think about God being preexistent. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and some scientists, that they were all atheists, and they were talking about, you know, one of the things that we've never considered is maybe the universe is eternal. And they started talking about, you know, the premise of, is it a possibility that the, etern- that the universe, as vast as it is, we cannot discover the limits of it. We'll talk some of that, about that next week. That, <clears throat> that it is eternal. And one of the scientists who is also an atheist, he says, does that mean that there's the possibility for an eternal being? Nah. Like, no, I think they kept it open. And I'm like, we're declaring right here. In fact, Henry Morris, the theologian, explained that this one verse refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and the meaning of the world. It refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism, and pantheism is the belief that God is in everything. He's in this stand, you know, he's in a bird that flies in the sky, he's in the mountains, he's in the rocks, he's in the streams. That's pantheism. It refutes pantheism because God is transcendent over all that he created. It also refutes polytheism, meaning that there are many gods. For it's declaring in the first four words, there is just one God. It refutes materialism, for matter has a beginning. It refutes dualism. Maybe you've heard of this theology where the belief that there are two heavenly entities, there's good and bad, and they're wrestling. And out of that wrestling, like in Greek mythology, the world is created. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And it refutes evolution because it's saying that God created all things. He goes on to say that, if I can turn the page... Come on, Henry, what you got to say? Actually, <clears throat> all such philosophies are merely different ways of expressing the same unbelief. Each one purpose that there is no personal transcendent God. And here's what's crazy when we think about this eternal being, and we're trying to get some kind of understanding as temporal beings about this eternal being. He says, I'm not a feeling. He says, I'm not the force that you hear about in Star Wars. He says, I'm not the laws of nature. God is saying that he is personal, he is intentional, and he is purposeful. I mean, if your mind's not already blown about the preexistence of God and his eternal nature, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1, he chose you through Christ to be holy and perfect in his presence. 
Why? Because of his love. He had already decided to adopt you through Jesus Christ. And he freely chose to do this so that the kindness he has given us and his dear son would be praised and be given glory. Think about this. Before there was anything, even time, God in his infinite wisdom, he declared, I am going to function out of love. And I'm going to function out of love toward you. I want to say two things, then <clears throat> special guest is coming up. Tim, don't leave. It may be you, you know? You never know. All right, see you later, buddy. <clears throat> I wish I was smarter uh, to be able to give you more, but let me just say a couple things. One is God is the source of all things. Let's just, how I want you to understand that is, like, for example, God is... <laughs> God is not life. He is life. He's, he didn't just give life. He is life. When we sold our house in Bellevue back in like 2000, uh, we went and signed our papers at the closing and we came back and it was a ranch and the downstairs had three inches of water on it. I know. My heart was broke. Like, <clears throat> we just signed the papers. And so I got the kids, and I gave them all buckets, and I started to start bailing, and we bailed for four days. Oh. No, we didn't. <laughs> Why? Because what we did was he said, we got to go to the source of where this water's coming from and shut it off. We had to go to the source. And so when we talk about God, sometimes we're dealing with the side effects without going to the source. For example, like, think about this. God isn't powerful. God is the source of all power. He is power. Like, there is no power apart from God. He is the maker of power, the keeper of power, the definer of power. There is nothing above his power. He is power. And he does powerful things. Why? Because he is power. God is not, he's not loving. That's not what God is. God says he is love. He is the fountainhead of all love. There is no love that does not find its roots in him. He is love. God is not wise. He is wise, but he's not just wise. He is the author, the keeper, the creator of all wisdom. He is wisdom. He is the fountainhead of every wise thing that has ever happened. And here's what's beautiful. If you've not seen the Chagalls on the back wall, that, that kind of rhymed, didn't it? <clears throat> uh, the artistic beauty on that back wall. Why do we do that? Because God is not an artist. He is art in its essence. And we'll talk some next week about this beautiful characteristic of God that he is the creator. He is the, he is, he is artist. In Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, For him, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. They all find their source in him. All things were created through him, Jesus, and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, the second thing I want you to know is that he's not just the source of all things. He's also above all things. There is nothing higher. There is no greater purpose in our lives. There's no greater meaning than God that he defines uh, our very purpose and what life is about. 
which means that all things are spiritual. Everything about my life is spiritual because everything came from him, the one who is the spirit that hovered over the water. That means you realize that your work isn't a job. It's spiritual. Your relationships aren't just trying to make it. They're spiritual. That your play is not just play, but it's spiritual. That money is spiritual. Your sexuality is spiritual. Your emotions are spiritual. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're drinking. It's all spiritual. In fact, there is an invitation from the great Godhead who created everything to believe that our purpose of our very lives are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as some said, glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The very purpose of our lives. In Psalm 73 it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Which means that all of my life it is spiritual, then all of my life is worship. Because there is nothing higher than him. There's nothing more worthy of him. There's nothing that's more qualified to receive awe from me than him. And Revelation is at the very end of the Bible. You know, we've gone to the beginning, now we're going to the end. It says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Because you are the creator, you are the beginner, you are the start, the source, and you're above it all, only you get my worship. And that's where we get in trouble. We get in big trouble because if all life is worship, that means every aspect of your life is worship to something. To something. So, who will be the lucky person to come up and join me? Who do you think would be most qualified to talk to us about all of life is worship? Kevin, come on up, Kevin, where are you at? Guys, I got to tell you, you know, I have been working with this guy for almost 12 years now. It's one of the greatest joys of my life and was just praising God this morning for the gift that he is to me. And there's nobody that I know that understands this more richly and deeply than the fact that all of life is worship. Uh, And what he's trying to bring healing into this room today as we begin this journey. So, Kevin, welcome. Thanks. You just relieved a lot of people that thought they were going to be asked to come up here. I've never won anything before. This is exciting. <laughs> so tell us, man, what does it mean that when what does it mean when you say all of life is worship? Yeah, that's so good. Uh, you know, all of life is worship is because uh, we are always worshiping. Uh, that that in everything that we do or say or think, um, we are doing it in light of a of a choosing or a chosen God. Um, that any moment in time we are giving our, our time, our affection, our love, our energy, our efforts, uh, like you said, to something or someone. Um, and, and we can't help it. Like, it is, it is who we are. We can't turn it on. We can't turn it off. Uh, we are constantly in state of worship, or, or, or maybe a better word for that is, is outpouring, is that our lives and our hearts are constantly outpouring towards something or someone. Um, has anybody here been to Niagara Falls? Oh, yeah, good crowd. Uh, does anybody know how much water goes over uh, the falls every minute? Quite a bit. <laughs> Was that right, a technical a, term? I right, take a guess. A in gallons. Somebody throw out a number word. in gallons. What do you think? 
10,000 gallons. Got one, a million gallons. Get a million, get a million. It's 44 million gallons of water a minute. I think our showers put out like two and a half gallons. But Your shower. My, actually, mine's like four. <laughs> we, uh, uh, so like the, my heart is a lot like Niagara Falls in the sense of it is constantly going. It's constantly flowing. It's constantly moving. It's constantly putting out 44 million gallons of love and affection and attention to something or someone. Um, and, and we were created that way. God made us to be that way, uh, to be outpours, because the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are in perfect communion with one another, constantly outpouring and receiving uh, from one another. And we were made in the image of that. Um, that's who we are. Uh, it's not a matter of if we worship. Uh, it's a matter of, of what we're worshiping at any given moment in time. So that's what we mean when we say all of life of worship is because we are in a constant state of worshiping. So that's kind of hard. Uh, that's a hard concept to think about when we think about that all of our lives are worship. Like, you know, you may be sitting there going, really? This, is everything in my life worship? Like even the mundane things are worship? And explain that again, that, <clears throat> that what's pouring out of us is, what, what is it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, this, the, the outpouring, like even you and I sitting right here, this is a state of worship. Uh, I'm giving you attention, I'm giving you time. Um, it's, it's everything we do, we, it, it, it infiltrates everything. Like we can't interact with anything without giving some of ourself, um, either ourselves or our, our resources, our time, uh, to whatever we're, we're giving it to. Like it's just constantly on. Maybe when I sleep, you know, maybe that's when it turns off a little bit or puts on pause, but right. yeah, but I'll all the time. So, you know, we talk a lot about the fact that, that if our hearts are made to, to worship like that, that, uh, that we find ourselves uh, inadvertently worshiping things that aren't God. Like, you know, when we think about worship, it's, the word worth is really important there because we're saying there's something that's worthy of my devotion, my trust, my praise, my hope. And our hearts get a little sideways because we tend to worship a lot of things that have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah it, it's true. And, and and the reason for that is, is that, that we're made in God's image. We're constantly outpouring, constantly worshiping. But the problem with that is that our worship, our outpouring is broken. Um, and that happened at the fall uh, because Adam and Eve were in perfect communion with God. When they sinned, that communion was broken. Uh, but here's the crazy thing is that their worship, their outpouring didn't stop. Uh, it didn't stop. It just changed directions. Um, and Romans tells us that. It says we, we've traded the truth of God for a lie and that we begin to worship created things uh, rather than the creator. Um, and so that's, that's the problem with our, with our worship. It, it's not stopped, it's just, it's just broken. Um, I, I've used this analogy uh, plenty of times before, but is anybody in here a fireman at all? I know that's a random question. Any firefighters here? Anybody here want to be a fireman? <laughs> I got one. I got two. Yeah, one. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we all know, like, a, you've seen a fire hose putting out a fire. I mean, that's a lot of water coming out. But has anybody seen a fire hose with nobody on it? Like, I mean, it is going all over the place, going crazy. Um, and that, to me, is a lot of what my heart's like, is that it's, it doesn't stop. The, the flow of water doesn't stop. It's just going all over the place and crazy and, and, and looking for anything to attach to. Um, because our hearts were made for, for communion. Our hearts were made to be in the fellowship with, with our Father who, uh, is, is, uh, who loves us, who cares for us, uh, who has said, you are mine and I am yours. 
That's what we were made for. And so our hearts are constantly looking for that. Where can I find the place where I belong, where I am yours and you are mine, where I can receive the love, affection, attention that I was made for? Um, but so that's, that's what we deal with in a fallen world is that, is that we're constantly outpouring, but our outpouring is broken. You know, it's actually, if you can think about it, it's, is worship is looking for that thing that gives me worth. The thing that I am finding the answers of who am I? What is this all about? What is life about? Why am I here? Who is God? Like all these questions really bring us back to worship. And I think about um, all the things that I look to that I worship to answer those questions for me. And we all have them. You know, we all have idols that we have created in our home hearts and minds. That idol could be the person sitting next to you that you've put all your hope into, that they're going to be the one that helps define who you are, that's going to give your life meaning and purpose and happiness. They're the person that's going to answer the hard questions of why you're here. Or maybe your idol is your job or your career or maybe success or maybe it's money or maybe it's your artistry or something. Whatever it is that you're attaching your hopes and dreams to that you really think is going to deliver on the deep questions of your life. And we were talking about this last service is that my neighbors have these vines growing on their garage, which means that those vines grow into my yard. And uh, so when I find one of those vines and I'm thanking Jesus for it, uh, and I start, <laughs> I start to pull on it, it always leads me to the garage. And if I want to know what my idols are, all I got to do is find out what am I afraid of. It's a simple tool because if you grab that fear and you start to pull on it, what it's going to lead you to is what you hope in. And what you hope in, you worship. In other words, if my fear is, uh, I'm never going to have enough money. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. And you keep pulling on that. Your hope is that money is going to define who you are. It's going to give you what you want out of life. And it's going to be your God. And if you back up and you go, well, maybe it's not, my fear isn't that I don't have enough. Maybe the fear is, is that nobody loves you enough. And that you start pulling on that and your hope is that I'm going to find somebody that's going to love me and make my life worth living. And scripture says all of those things, when we take our worship from him, worthiness to do those things, and we put them on other things, that's idols. So let me ask you this. Is God just an egomaniac up in heaven that goes, hey, just me, just worship me? Like, why is he concerned so much about what we give worship to? That's, that's great. I mean, I think it's just simply because we were made for him. I mean, he made us to be in fellowship and communion with him. And the reason that idols are so dangerous, the thing that we put our, our, our worship stores outpouring to is, is they can not only lead us to uh, more dangerous or darker things, but one of the things that I was thinking about is, is one of the reasons that idols are so dangerous for me is uh, they, uh, they fill up um, what, what God is supposed to fill up. And let me, let me give you an example. Um, if you go and, um, and, and just dig out on junk food, you're going to be full, right? But you're not necessarily going to be getting what your body needs. Um, but you're not going to be hungry anymore. And one of the things that idols is so dangerous for me is that it, it takes away my hunger um, because I fill up uh, what only the Lord can do. And I'll give you an example, and, and I'm going to probably... Uh, offend people but even me like let's awesome take, dude let's i'm so take, glad uh, somebody else is doing that go for it let's let's and we're gonna feel really offended really i'm offended. ready it's not gonna be offensive but i'm just thinking about let's take netflix for example all right when i come home at the end of the day i'm tired i'm hurt i had a bad day any number of things i can turn on netflix and what does it do like it calms me it soothes me, me squid games gives me yeah great 
Anyway, keep going. Go, go ahead. It worse. I'm sorry. <laughs> like it does all, like all of a sudden, I don't need God anymore. I don't need Jesus at the end of my day. Like I don't need Jesus when I'm hurt or when I'm lonely or when I'm sad because Netflix has given it to me. So like idols, what it does, what reason it's so dangerous for me is that it fills up what, what the Lord is supposed to be. Yeah. Like I am the one that's made, that your heart is made for. And if you just fill it up with other things, then you're not going to have the hunger. You're not going to have the need for me. And you're not going to let me have the opportunity to love you, to care for you. So, you know, it's so good because when the Lord is jealous for us, uh, what he's jealous for is for us to know who we are. And when we give our affections and our hearts to idols, they're lying to us. They're lying to you. And they're stealing from you. The very grace that God, it says you have forfeited god's grace in your life because of the foolish idols that you cling to so when we're talking about starting at the very beginning that this is a worship war that's the war that's going on in our hearts and our lives i mean we used to have a dog that would get in our neighbor's trash and it was a horrible thing like to walk out and see your neighbor's trash everywhere and know that your dog was responsible for that <laughs> uh, but our dog loved their trash and if i found one of my children out there doing that I, I would be saddened because I would say, you have left who you are. You, this is not who you are. You're not our dog. You, you're a son, a cherished son, and your hunger will never be satisfied in that trash pile. Come to the table, to your father's table, and feast on the things that will fill you up and give your life purpose and power. So when we're talking about destroying our idols and putting them down, we're not saying, you know, it'll make your life a little better. It probably won't. It may make your life a lot harder, like walking through the desert. But in that place, guess what? You will discover who you are. It'll make your life a lot more meaningful because you'll discover who he is. And in that place, you'll experience that he's not just powerful. He is power. So, okay. So, uh, how do we put down? How do we repent and experience the revival? Yeah. Uh, I think, you know... Um, the way that, we're, that we, how do we fix this? And, and it's like you said, it's repentance. But repentance is one of those words that I'm sure gives us the shivers a lot of times. But repentance is simply just returning um, and turning back to, um, you know, repentance is, is if I'm walking this way, it's just a simple, I'll just turn it around, back to, back to what I was made for, back to who I was made for. It's laying down our idols, it's laying down our, our, um, our, our faults, our sins. And, and the beautiful thing about repentance, it's so awesome and having the rhythm of that, like we can get intimidated by that and, and, and feel like, oh, um, uh, repentance is this idea of, of, you mentioned in the first service, is like, oh, I've got to do more. I've got to do better. And that's not what repentance is. Repentance is coming back to the Lord. And what repentance allows us is to realize, oh, I can't do more. I can't do better. I can't fix this. I can't uh, be enough. Um, so repentance is this beautiful invitation just to simply turn our faces back to the Lord and say, yeah, I recognize. I, I miss this. Um, and that's one of the reasons we use Sunday mornings. That's why we're here is that we use our gathering together. We use scripture, we use uh, prayer, uh, and we use song. Song, in a big way, um, is, is a really powerful tool to redirect our hearts to the Lord. Like song and music, it stirs, it awakens our hearts. And then we sing, we sing what is true. Uh, and, and that allows uh, our hearts to be transformed. We, we say it often, this idea of, of um, your heart will treasure whatever you put in front of it. Uh, and so we sing uh, to put that in front of our hearts and say, this is what's true about God. This is what's true about who you are. Heart, latch on to this. Um, and oftentimes we, we feel like we have to get to a certain place before we sing. Like, oh, I, gotta, I need to feel what I'm singing before I can sing it. And, and the opposite is true. We sing to allow our hearts to get to that place. 
That's why we sing. I was talking to George uh, in the first service, and he mentioned the power of speaking something out. Um, Like, how hard is it to believe? uh, For me, let me just say for me. For me, it's very often really hard for me to believe that God is good. And I can try to tell that to that myself, uh, God is good, God is good. And that is really hard for my heart to latch on to. But something powerful happens uh, when I sing that out, uh, when I sing and speak it out, God, you are good. Whether or not I believe it, um, I am holding this in front of my heart going, okay, now latch on to this. Hold on to this. Hold on to this. And we do that together because uh, when we do that together, it encourages uh, and, and inspires our hearts. Uh, I know we got to wrap up, but... Um, they just did a, uh, there was a study I read about where uh, this university in Sweden, um, uh, they did a study on a choir, and they noticed as people were singing together that their breathing started to match each other, uh, and even their heart rates uh, started to beat at the same time. So that's why we do this together, is because there's something powerful when we sing in numbers, because it actually, music and singing has the power to transform our hearts. And that's what we're talking about, is, is all of life is worship, and we come together and go, let's restore ourselves to our sanity. Let's restore our hearts back to the place that it belongs, uh, in the arms of our Father. That's good, Kevin. Thank you. You know, I, uh, we're about to go into a time of repentance and a time of uh, revive or being revived. And I'll just uh, say again, repentance is, uh, we're not coming to God getting fresh forgiveness. Um, We believe that when Christ went to the cross, um, he died for all my sins. And when he became my own savior, he covered all my sins, past, present, and future. So I'm not coming to him in penance to make a deal with him that if you forgive me this time, somehow or another, I'll be better. We're coming back to receive and drink deeply the forgiveness that is already ours. In fact, if you think about repentance in this way, it's we're returning back to our sanity. We're, get, we're lifting our head out of the trash uh, can of our neighbor's house and seeing our father who's standing at the door saying, hey, breakfast is on. And we're coming back to the table of our father to remember whose name do we wear? Uh, whose identity do we have? And who's giving me the call of my life that he's uniquely gifted me for? So um, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And by God's grace, if there's some places in your life that you have created idols, uh, just confess them to the Lord. Say, here they are, Lord. And then join us as we come into this time of worship. And uh, hang on, get your clap on, because we're about to light this place up, all right? (laughs) So, Lord, um, we come to you right now, the great giver of grace. The one who is not loving, but the one who is love. And Lord, it's hard to understand that you pre-existed, but it's even more, it's more difficult sometimes for me to understand that even in that pre-existent state, we were on your mind and heart. That we were a part of your plan of creating a people that would bear your name. Forgive us, Father, for how we have, we have picked up small idols, lesser gods. We have given such a small definition to our lives that we dared to live our lives so shrunk down in this small place that, Lord, we have forgotten who you are and therefore we've forgotten who we are. Hear our prayers now, Lord, as we confess our, our idols to you and put them down. Now lead us, Father, in this time of worship and praise. Revive us, your people. In Christ's name, amen.